You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 480, Sean Connery and the glowing obituaries, musicians on tour 2021 versus 1974, and deep fake pop music. That's all coming up after the blossoms and there's a reason why I never returned your calls. released three albums in the last four years uh, that have reached number one number four and number one respectively here in the uk that was from their second album from 2018 and the album cool like you blossoms and there's a reason why i never returned your call i mean that is so it's morrissey-esque and it's kind (laughs) of you know it's pointedness isn't it really i really like blossoms i had no idea they've been as prolific as you say they're one of those bands who i should make an effort to seek them out really i never really have but any time i've heard any of their songs playing on a radio somewhere or on telly or on a shop i've always gone who's this and when it's turned out to be blossoms i've always really liked it so i must dig into them a bit more 
they all look impossibly young as well. Well, of course, of course, they, they seem to be right up there with with Laura Marling as well, who's done something <laughs> like seven albums but before she hit thirty or something. They, uh, it's the young, they're so energetic, Terence. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us for this latest instalment from the Parish Council. It's mm. episode four hundred and eighty. I'm Terence Stackham. And, well, let's make sure she hasn't gone to Four Seasons Total Landscaping by mistake. <laughs> it's Juliet Harris. I haven't, but I have bought one of those T-shirts that they've had designed. <laughs> I must have, I'm looking forward to wearing that out and about. Um, someone did tweet, Waldorf Astoria heating and plumbing, our day will come. But, uh, yeah, the, 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 a suitably surreal coda to what has been a very odd four years, let's face it. But, it um, yeah, it was. there was just something about the way that it ended that just you know uh, can you imagine if he'd won and that's what had happened that would have been even more grim wouldn't it really um, i couldn't understand about that i know this isn't part of our uh um menu this week but let's riff why not we we can do improv terms we can do this you know it was that it would have been quite quite a simple thing if they'd have told all these journalists, look, come to Four Seasons and here's the address. And then suddenly, realize, oh, my God, we didn't mean it to be this landscaping <laughs> company next to uh, a, a, an adult bookshop at a timber yard or something. <laughs> you know, we meant the hotel. Just just put out. Us, oh, sorry. You know, we, we got the address wrong. This is where it's really at the Four Seasons Hotel. Mm. But the mindset was that's going to, you know, we mustn't look foolish in any way. <laughs> so we, exactly. So we're going to bluff this out, which of course then made them look even more impossibly foolish than uh, if they'd taken the first course of action and and there was yeah as you say there was something just something so ridiculous about rudy giuliani literally (laughs) bellowing outside a outside a sort of a a a garden center shopping outlet and uh, and i think the best bit if it couldn't have got any better they were outside four seasons total landscaping who by the way have just had the kind of publicity that you Mm. can't buy um what made it even better was that they were holding at as as the TV networks called it for Biden, and uh, one of the reporters said to Rudy Giuliani, "Ah, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. it's been called for called for tr- called for uh, for Biden that that he's won that he's president elect." Rudolph Giuliani said rather sort of you know sort of irritably, "Ah, oh, what network?" And uh, the reporter replied, "All of them." <laughs> <laughs> Which you know that was that was my TV heaven for those, those few those few minutes. I think it was yeah it was. It was something else, but yes, I am not at Four Seasons Landscaping, oh, nor good. am I, nor am I at Pizza Express Skip Hire, if indeed such a <laughs> such an establishment exists. I am alive and broadcasting as always in pajamas from my spare room. Hello. I've been thinking about the validity and the purpose of obituaries this week, you know, as as one does. Um, I was going to say, it's a laugh a minute round your car. It really is, yeah, yeah. Uh, A giggle a minute. Um, Sean Connery died last week at the age of 90, and the early early prepared obituaries were full of praise and included quotes from fellow actors and film people describing him in vividly positive terms. And I was just thinking, well, should that be the beginning and the end for obituaries? A happy mm. reminiscence for family and friends? Should any negatives, any dark side be, be concealed? And I mentioned this as a, a quite bizarre circumstance led to me knowing more about Sean Connery than many people who thought they mm. knew him well. And what happened was in 1998, I rented a house for a while in the mountains, uh, in the middle of nowhere, it was uh, like a 40 minute drive down to the to, to the um, Mediterranean, mm. in the mountains in Andalusia in Spain. And I, I'd been working really hard on various projects. And I just wanted to escape for a while. That was that was the long and short of it. And in this house, it was lovely. In this house, there were bookshelves all the way up the stairs filled with books, of course. And over my time there, I randomly pulled out magazines and books and was flicking through them and so on. And... I pulled out once this set of notebooks and they were the handwritten diaries of Diane Cilento from the late 60s and early 70s and captured her life as the the time she was married to Sean Connery. Mm. How and why they were there, I have no idea. It's very strange, isn't it? Owned the house after Mm. they split and, you know, possibly left them there. I don't know. But I wasn't really sure what they were. And so I was glancing through them and 
as I was sort of reading and thinking, what is this? First of all, I thought it was like fiction and mm. notes for a, for a novel or something like that. So I was reading through it. And then I sort of realised what I was reading. And you found the, these records of um, appalling abuse recorded by Diane Shalento, uh, by Connery. And I felt like I'd abs- you know, sort of accidentally stumbled into her private world. And I, I genuinely read no further because I felt mm. awful. And I put them back on the shelves. Now, in the last few days, some UK newspapers have reported on stories where witnesses confirmed the abuse suffered by Diane Cilento. So, Jules, I was thinking, when people um, die, should everything be all glowing and beautiful for the sake of the family? Which I can understand. Or should we reveal all, even if it presents the darkest aspects of, of, of character? It's strange, isn't it? And the, the, the most interesting, well, I think the most telling thing about this, I consider myself to be someone who's reasonably well informed. I'm quite well read and particularly on the sort of 60s and that kind of era and those sort of interests. I've always enjoyed the Bond films very much. And Sean Connery was probably my favourite Bond if you had to, if you had to, uh, in a James Bond style, put a gun to my head. I would probably say that. Um and I also consider myself to be a feminist and to be very up on, on those sort of issues. I had no idea. Maybe this is me showing the age that I am. Mm. But I had no idea about any of this stuff around the Sean Connery and his attitudes towards women and particularly mm. his wife, his first wife, as you mentioned, until people started, some women who I really admire, who I follow on Twitter, started sort of posting about it in a kind of a, you know, this is really difficult because I know that lots of people really loved him and, and really miss mm. him and really love James Bond. But I won't forget these comments that he made. I won't forget Diane and Talento, that sort of thing and I had no idea about it so so intre- it's interesting I think that maybe it was the fact that it dated from another time I don't know but it's it's weird that that it's it's unusual that this has been brought up in his death because it certainly didn't seem to me like it was in very broad circulation during his life I'm not saying that no one knew about it because I didn't know but you know what mm. I mean it, it, no, it, I it, it, it wasn't it wasn't at the forefront of everything maybe it would be now today if this was happening now maybe maybe we have moved on to the point where we'd hear more about it I'm not sure I think we probably would I like to think we would so I'm I'm not sure really it it's to some extent, you can sometimes pull the it was a different time card. That mm. is to some extent true. But if it is true that he was asked about his comments in the late 90s and he refused to retract them, mm. then that is that is a different issue, I think. I'm not sure. It's this difficult. was where it's, he was quoted as saying it was all right to, to hit a woman. A woman. Yes, mm. that's that's right. And and he was you know questioned about it again in the 90s and he chose yeah. to stand by those comments. It's strange, isn't it? I can understand why obituaries of people tend towards the more positive. Maybe maybe the right balance is publishing a factual obituary of someone and then allowing allowing a sort of a commentary alongside alongside it, which is what's happened here. It sounds like it's mm. copping out slightly, but I don't know. Maybe maybe rather than maybe the, the maybe the, the answer is because of course I always I, I said this when I lost a very good friend of mine last year. I said to someone I know everyone's always the the most wonderful person that ever lived when they die, but he genuinely was a very nice person. But I do I do feel that maybe obituaries would be better placed just to give us the facts of someone's life rather than necessarily speculating on their personality and then and then you know there was there's always comment pieces for that isn't there yeah exactly i i I suppose that is a compromise it can be very difficult and if it's um if a celebrity dies the coverage is obviously far greater than um if you're not a celebrity of course and but perhaps more far-reaching and Sort of coincidentally, really, I suppose, there was a piece in the papers again this week, um, uh, you know, in in the same um, pages, really, where Sean Connery was mentioned. There was an interview um, this week about Rick Okasek from the band The Cars. In fact, oddly enough, Mm. we mentioned them a week or two ago. We did. Um, And he died a year ago. And his eldest son, Chris, who astonishingly is 56. That's crazy. Our rock stars now have 56-year-old children. That is crazy. Goodness me. Chris Okasek, he referred to his father in this interview uh, a year, you know, sort of the year's anniversary, and I think this came from uh, America. He referred to his father as a deadbeat dad, a cruel pretender, and a narcissist, which, you know, is pretty mm. grim. 
And it's not great, is it? No, and he details in this in this interview the rather awful relationship Okasek uh, had with his children. So I went back and had a quick look at the obituaries from a year ago when he died, because mm. no mention of any of this. And I, I don't know, people feel such pain, and I think on balance, the information has to be out there. I'm covering mm. up Sean Connery and Rick Okasek's behaviour. You know, it may leave a warm glow of memory, but it's kind of fake and and so the i think the truth is the way to go yeah absolutely i i yeah may, maybe you know yeah like you say maybe either the truth is the way to go or perhaps more accurately rather than own you know if you're if maybe it's best not to include any speculation as mm. to someone's personality at all so rather Just than give the facts literally yeah don't born, don't yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is appeared in this, appeared in that, had a claim for this, you know, you, you keep yeah. it to the work rather than necessarily saying he so, was a wonderful person, blah, 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 because that always seems to be asking for trouble, in my opinion. And I can understand why people wouldn't necessarily want negative things written in an obituary. Yeah. In which case then just keep it factual. Just yeah. just you know, let's 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 forget all this, you know, hagiography and let's just leave it, you know, let's let's just let the facts speak for themselves. That, that's possibly the, the ideal answer. Coming right up, Juliet has the future for live music all mapped out. <laughs> I do, yes. Now, and I'll be comparing that to Life on the Road in the 1970s. Mm. That's right after Kirsty McCall.
thinking about covers the other day and which of which covers were my favourites. And as I, I thought I was cooking at the time, and the thought occurred to me that actually when it comes to people covering other people's material i've picked two covers this week by two women who i think are excellent interpreters of other people's material and actually i think that every cover that kirsty mccall did i liked more than the original having already liked the original a lot which i think is quite a quite a quite a feat really she did an excellent version of you just haven't earned it yet by the smiths uh, i really loved her version of days by the kinks yeah. and i love this as well it's her take on uh, billy bragg's number originally they changed the word slightly for her um and it's a new england and i bought that in a second hand shop for 50p on a seven inch single when i was about 17 and i do still have my copy i'm surprised it still plays because i've played it so much i think that's such a glorious version i love it it is so sweet and as you say billy bragg's um original was on his first album it was only about if i remember rightly about two minutes long mm. so that's because mccall sort of called him up and said look could you write another couple of verses for me so we could you know, <laughs> make it a, a sort of proper radio pop song yeah and and it and it did very well didn't it because yeah. it is just it's just lovely, it's lovely. And, also, and also she did have her i was a little bit sorry for her it's a shame that there are people out there that think that they don't know it is a tracy Ullman song because it really isn't it's Kirsty's really as far as i'm Said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we're going to talk about the future of live music mm. at, at clubs, arenas, festivals, I thought it'd be a good opener to begin with a quote from Harvey Goldsmith because he's a oh, man. Why not? Promoted, yes. Yeah, he's a man promoted gigs for fifty-four years, and this is Harvey Goldsmith um, in an interview talking about promoting live music, and he says, "For up-and-coming acts, life is becoming increasingly uh, more more." Um, Difficult. The Rolling Stones are still pulling crowds in, but there are too many shows on the road and I don't think the market can take it. I Mm. can foresee a slump in the concert business. New acts don't seem to be paying dues anymore. One hit record and they're already headlining their own tour. Then record companies are just saying if they don't sell records, we'll drop them. And this is reflected at our end of the business, end of quote. And Mm. um, interesting view from Harvey Goldsmith and very relevant, except. That quote was from an interview Harvey Goldsmith gave to reporter Rob Partridge in an interview with the Melody Maker in 1974. Oh, I like that. So it really does show that nothing much changes in the world of live gigs. Absolutely. Uh, isn't that astonishing? If I that's, said uh, that's to really you, bizarre, everyone, isn't it? That's yeah, you know absolutely. from last week. No one would have batted an eyelid from 1974. So. Um, George, the thing is, um, you've been looking at the future, if there is one, for live gigs in 2021 and beyond. Well, absolutely. Or specifically festivals, I think, because that seems to be that seems to be something that it, that is particularly occupying people. Um, there's a, a select committee in Parliament is looking at ways they're seeking contributions to try and work out a plan in which festivals are viable in 2021 i mean the the progress on on the vaccine might well make things a bit easier in that respect but um but uh, one thing i have been looking at is this article in billboard how ticketmaster plans to check your vaccine status for concerts exclusive um and this is all hung on hung on the framework that the vaccine uh, progress on the vaccine may enable the music business to start mounting a return in 2021. So Ticketmaster has been thinking things through um, a framework for post-pandemic fan safety that uses smartphones to verify fans' vaccination status or whether they've tested negative for the coronavirus within a 24 to 72-hour window. But once you've worked it out, guys, can you send it to our government in Britain? Because I think we need some help. Um, there's lots. I mean, this is still very much in development so Mm. i I will stress that but there are three separate components right so there's lots of moving parts this there's a ticket master digital ticket app there's i hate to say this third party health information companies that's already setting off a big siren Mm. in my head like clear health pass or ibm's digital health pass ibm known for their medical prowess (laughs) to to have spent their their previous life career making computers and testing and vaccination distribution providers like LabCorp, which sounds like sounds like the the evil villains company in a bomb film doesn't it we were just talking about bomb the evil LabCorp and the cvs minute clinic um here's 
how it would work if approved. Okay. So you buy a ticket for a concert. You need to verify that you've already been vaccinated, which will provide approximately one year of COVID protection, or test negative for coronavirus approximately 24 to 72 hours prior to the concert. So it'd be interesting to see how this flies, given that if you want to see the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park next November, you probably need to buy tickets in May this year, mm. if you see what I mean. So it'd be interesting mm -hmm. to see how that ties in. Um, if it was a 24-hour window, most people would likely be tested the same day of the event at a lab or a health clinic. Once the test is complete, you as a fan instruct the lab to deliver the results to their to your health pass company, like, you know, computer merchants, IBM. Um, if the tests are negative or if you've been vaccinated, then the health pass company uh, verifies your status Ticketmaster so they effectively are acting as your middleman mm. they're kind of your referee um, Ticketmaster then give you the credentials you need to access the event um, if you test positive or you don't take a test you won't be granted access to the event the, basically the the goal of the programme is for fans to take care of vaccines and testing prior to the concert and not show up hoping to be tested on sites now Ticketmaster are claiming they won't store or have access to medical records and they only receive verification on whether a fan is clear to attend a date on a different on a given date now this is an american article just to add another role uh, another layer of, of of difficulty to this different states will have different requirements oh, Lord. Um, just uh, you know it's <laughs> I, I love the I, I mean you know america is is you know such a vast country it's almost unthinkable to someone that lives over here in the UK. I mean, the thought of me not being able to go to an event in Staffordshire because they have different <laughs> different mm. requirements to where I live in Sussex seems a bit mad, yet somehow in the US and indeed in Germany and anywhere with federal law, I suppose it, it works in a different way. Um, this is this is very... Um, this is very... It's very fiddly, isn't it? It's very complicated. It's very clumsy. Like, it is clumsy, and I can see why they want to have a third-party middleman, but my difficulty is, if we were to translate this to the UK, I'd much rather that, that my record stayed with the NHS, and it mm. was them that provided the information, rather than, I know it's, I know it's different in America, because mm. their healthcare system is different, but I don't like the idea... I don't particularly like the idea of a company. I mean, I, I know that we're living in a different world, but I'm slightly uncomfortable with the idea of a company that's putting on a gig having my medical records. I'm even more uncomfortable with having to give them to a third party in order to pass them on. It feels like there's an awful lot that can go wrong in this scenario. A couple of thoughts occurred to me as you tell us about this, because I've just jotted a few things. Down. So you buy a ticket, you verify you've been vaccinated or you test negative just before the gig, a couple of days yeah. before the gig. Then the results are delivered to Ticketmaster. Then you receive the content, the credentials to access the yeah. gig. So first of all, uh, one of my favourite phrases, where's the joy in all of this? Yes, sort of I know. I know. And look at all the potential for error. Yeah. And dodgy practice getting by lost, people yeah. getting others to um, take the test for them and then use yes. their credentials. And um, do you know what it reminded me of as you were saying this? Um, again, often <laughs> mentioned by me that 2014 gigs by Kate Bush at Hammersmith yes. Apollo. Now, when we got the tickets, for that, I was lucky enough, very, very lucky enough to get tickets for the first night. Mm. And you got an email, you got a letter, you were told by text, you were told you will not get access to because, you know, they didn't want any touts or anything like that. Fair enough. So you will not get access unless you bring photo ID with you and your name on your photo ID matches that of the ticket. And I thought, oh, God, I must remember, take my passport, you know, and you got there, all of this, got to the uh, entrance. Um, set, you know, kind of half a glance at it. Yeah, come on in, mate. In you go. Nobody even mm. looks for the passport or the the uh, ID that we were told was mandatory to get in. Yeah, absolutely. And one could imagine that scenario happening yes. all over again, although perhaps more fatally. Yeah. With all of this, because. Um, it just seems it's one of, as I said, first of all, where's the joy? Where's the spontaneity and saying, let's go to a gig? That's out the window. But it's one of those things that's impossible to police. And of course, you would only need 5% of the people to be in there who've got in there by nefarious means for it to become an incredible super spreader event. Well, quite, I agree. It, it is very, very difficult. It's going to be very difficult to police isn't it really and after people have not gone to things for 18 months to two years like you say there is unfortunately the idea that people will 
want to take a chance, you know, yes. if people will just want to risk it because they're sick of being in all the time. I mean, I have tickets to see Goldfrap in April in an indoor venue. I'm not convinced that's going to happen, yeah. but, you know, we'll see. We'll see how we get on. But, yeah, I, I agree. There is a, there is. A, I mean, my feeling, maybe I'm more naive than you. My feeling is that there's a lot of potential for just this to go wrong operationally, for stuff to get lost. But like you say, that the potential of people to trick the system, unless you're going to go down the biometrics route, it seems it seems a bit impossible, doesn't it, really? It does. You know, we, we I, um, found that Harvey Goldsmith quote from 1974 that we were talking about a few mm. minutes ago. And that just led me to thinking I was um, working in the music business at times, a very junior sort of booking agent, tour manager, manager and so on. And it reminded me of how different it was back then. Either getting American artists over here or our bands going to the US because. I'd rather forgotten about this, but just think I was just sort of thinking the other day about 1974 and what I was doing. The British Musicians Union back then they had a massive stranglehold over all musical endeavours in, in, in those days. And they insisted that if an American band was to tour in the UK, there had to be a mandatory process. They called it the reciprocal arrangement for a British act to go to America in exchange. Um, so, you you know, if you were over here and you wanted to book Steely Dan, to come yeah. over here. And if we then wanted to send a British band out there, you'd have to find this British band to match up with Steely Dan for the date. Oh, so I when they see. come over here, we'd have to send a British band over there. And I remember in the, in the uh, mid-70s, we had It, it a, sounds like a hostage exchange, this, it doesn't really it, really? It's a bit it strange. In the, um, in the 70s, we had a tour over here. We brought the Doobie Brothers and Little Feet. They came over here. That's and a hell of a lineup. I, it was. I was a very junior sort of uh, person, but I, I kind of tour managed it. And we sent over there in exchange because you did it through the Musicians Union. You, the agent, didn't have to actually find an act. The musician then found uh, acts that they could send over there in exchange. So we had the Doobie Brothers and Little Feet over here. And <laughs> Did you exchange, give them in return? We gave them Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane and Engelbert <laughs> right. Humperdinck. That's, I, I mean, I have to be honest. And say, I have, I've never seen Engelbert. I have seen Johnny Dankworth and Cleo Lane together and they were fabulous. But it's not exactly, it's really? not even, t I mean, I don't want to talk about meritally, but tonally it's not really a, 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 an equal match, is it? Particularly, really, it's, it's a bit, no. it's a bit it's strange. Been, when the Beatles went to America and the Ed Sullivan show in 64 and became superstars, they could only go in this reciprocal arrangement and some American band, um, you know, had to come to over here and i think it was um bill haley that uh, came over so uh, in exchange mm. the beatles so well, say, isn't like, that strange with charlie you know the, the sending yeah. the hostages from each side across very very strange julia times and, and I, I love the fact as well that um I mean, you know, Bill Haley was probably a bit past his sell-by date even then, wasn't he? His 60 star, years old then, I imagine. Yeah. I was going to say, his star burnt very briefly, didn't it? There were peculiar times. It was, you know, red tape was the order of the day. And it, it you know, makes you think again that rather like that whole Harvey Goldsmith interview, nothing has changed. Absolutely. Things uh, plus the change plus the meme shows. Coming next, deep fake pop songs. Uh. That's right after Postal Service. Last week I had the strangest dream Where everything was exactly how it seemed Where there was never any mystery Of who shot John F. Kennedy It was just a man with something to prove Slightly bored and severely confused He steadied his rifle with his target in the center on that day in November 
band whose name was chosen due to the method they would send each other tapes back and forth in the mail when they were writing songs, which is clearly before the internet made that a simpler exercise. They only made one album. Uh, this gorgeous track um, was from it, from 2003, and the album Give Up, The Postal Service and Sleeping In. That is lovely. I really like that album a great deal. It reminds me, it came out around the time I was at university. I remember it used to get played such great heights, particularly used to get played very loudly at house parties. People used to, people would dance. I played at a house party I went to once. I seem to remember we we ended up having to walk home in the snow because we couldn't get any taxis at 3am. And that was, there were two rooms. There was the up room, which was people dancing to the postal service. And there was the down room, which was people falling asleep to slint, if I remember correctly. So so, uh, so, yeah, not a time in my life I'll ever get to go back to because I'm now too old, which is a shame. But I'm very fond of that album. I think it's lovely. Oh, your snow-driven walk there. It sounded like a, a the script from a Richard Curtis movie. It was, well, it was, it, was, it was probably more similar to a film called Garden State, which we watched at the time, which was very, that might have had that. It certainly had the shins on the, on the soundtrack. That, that was, that was, it was probably more budget-wise it was nearer to that, I think, than it was to Richard Curtis. <laughs> I don't think Richard Curtis did any films about rather dishevelled-looking uh, young students walking through council estates in Norwich. It doesn't feel like it. <laughs> him sort of environment but who knows maybe not well now as if we don't have enough to trouble us in the world here comes Mm. a peculiar new development deep fake pop songs constructed by artificial intelligence to sound like deceased stars like bowie michael jackson elvis sinatra it's been developed (laughs) by a company based in california called open ai and the program It's called Jukebox and it works by feeding the software with an algorithm and lots of audio and images of the target band or singer. Jukebox then learns how to sample and replicate the sound, creating new songs using the artist's voices and instruments. And just to give you an idea, here's a very short clip because it's all we can bear of <laughs> jukebox's simulation of the beatles Well, I don't think Lennon and McCartney have much to fear there, Jules. Um, it, it may that is be... the, that's the grimmest thing I've heard yes. in some time, I think. It's even worse than that, that that slew of TV presenter albums that come out around Christmas time. Yes. You know, Nick Knowles, yeah. dear old Bradley Walsh and Alexander Armstrong. It's even worse than that. It's grim, isn't it? It really is. It, it may be um, at a very basic level right now, but this could be a weird glimpse into the future. Mm. music no longer dies with the artist jules that is very strange isn't it i mean we, we've we've had this before already to some extent with uh i think we've talked about this on the podcast previously holograms, holograms yes. yeah so we've had you know Abba holograms uh, really. yeah and El- elvis which considering they're not even deceased is strange enough isn't it yes. but uh but you know elvis and michael jackson and people like that it's very strange I, I find this very grim and troubling really it's um it's it's very so so it's it's strange enough um when it's people that are alive like you say with with abba but this idea that people have come back from the from the grave it's one thing i was thinking about if there are circumstances in which it is okay and of course there are lots of artists that have had posthumous number ones um uh, just after their deaths, in the case of people like Otis Redding, Doc of the Bay was number one after he died, um, but also songs being re-released. So we talked previously about the run of Elvis singles that were re-released and, and got to number, some of them got to number one. Um, Lennon, also, of course, in yeah, 1980. And, uh, and of course, the Beatles, the Beatles themselves, Free yeah. as a Bird and Real Love, mm. um, which was, uh, Free as a Bird was worked up from John Lennon's demo, uh, de- John Lennon's demo tape. That is hard to say. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> and um, and they remember them saying at the time how strange it was for them to be making this recording based on his sort of demo without him being there. And I think it was Paul McCartney said that they told themselves that John was away on holiday, which I find incredibly poignant actually. Mm. The and so so it's even stranger the idea that not even existing material, but the fact that you're using these strange. They sound like a, a photocopy of a facsimile. They don't sound anything like the original, really. There are some that are better than others, but 
you know, I say better than others. You know, why? It, to quote Stephen Kinnock's wife in that documentary, why are you doing this now? It's really strange. It's so peculiar that, and some of the stuff like there's been some Sinatra ones made. And all they seem to be singing is kind of banalities, really. They're just sort of singing stuff that's been put into the program really it's just it sounds meaningless really it's just meaningless kind of phrases and and you know sort of sentimentalities that they're that they're sort of making and it it feels like a toy really or you know a a toy program it doesn't feel like it's adding anything artistically to our world and I will absolutely hate it if this becomes the the dominant thing I'm hoping that it won't on the basis that people will always want to hear things that if not exactly innovative, are still at least new. And so I don't know if this will take off or not. I really hope it doesn't. Just because in the same way that I hate the fact that so much of cinema is remakes now. Mm. I hate the idea that we're just rehashing the same stuff. Um, it's, I mean, of course, we, we, we've we heard about the idea of deep fakes and the concerns of what they will have on our political and our, our public life. Um, the brilliant documentary, and uh, I say documentary, it felt, that's a Freudian slip, it felt like a documentary. The drama Years and Years mm. that was on, that looked at deep fakes being used to fake what politicians were sort of saying, really. I mean, I, I keep meaning to re-watch Years and Years, but it just feels a bit too close at the moment to yeah. what's going on. But it just goes to show how amazing it was. But, um, but yeah, there's there's just something about these deep fakes. The people that have come back from the dead yet have been stripped of life, if you see what I mean. It's, it's I find it very... I find it very downheartening, really, the idea that so much time and energy is being spent on rehashing stuff in a way that isn't particularly witty or informative. It's just sad to me. I just don't like it very much. You've really got me thinking here because I'm imagining this um, AI jukebox thing combined with sophisticated holograms like the one Kanye arranged for Kim Kardashian's mm. birthday of her father. And, you know, and and despite it being extraordinary tasteless it was you know rather well done and you could mm. have the Beatles or Elvis or Sinatra or anyone appearing live in that case endlessly in any number of venues in any number of countries it's a sort of alternative dystopian universe like you were talking about that show where you you, you know you, we would end up not knowing if you're seeing and hearing genuine music and musicians mm. or a ai versions holograms um instead and i mean well that's that's a thought to give us all nightmares isn't it it really? is it's really strange i it just it doesn't feel real and it, you know i i find the idea you know I, the, one of the, the the saddest things about the coronavirus thing for me has been how technology has repl- has had to in some cases replace human contact in so many areas of our lives and that makes me very sad actually so so i hope that this isn't the future i hope that maybe maybe this is something else that is tied into the vaccine maybe if we're able to start going out and seeing people like live music again seeing our friends again maybe the attraction maybe the attraction of this will be less or maybe the point of it will be less because it's one thing maybe maybe seeing this through a computer screen makes it somehow a bit more valid i don't know if we can all see each other in real life again maybe stuff like this will seem as strange as it is rather than normal if you view it on a screen yeah that's a cheerier that's a cheerier way of looking at it yeah i, I, that's, uh, I was gonna say we've got to give our we've got to give our loyal listeners something terence come on <laughs> Well, thanks so much for listening this week. Mm. It's great that you're there. Yeah, and... it's, it's really nice to know that you're here with me in my spare room in my pyjamas. That is a comfort. <laughs> thanks, guys. Now, George, assuming you're not helping with the recount of votes in Georgia. <laughs> yes, indeed. Where may we... Where may... Where might we find you um, delighting us with your tasteful musical choices? Well, you say tasteful. Some people that would listen to my smooth sailing yacht rock show might feel it's anything but. But having said that, um, I did use a little show on Sunday evenings on Mixer, my Mixer channel, mixlr.com, called Smooth Sailing, 7 to 9 p.m. Yacht rock, uh, M-O-R, smooth, easy listening, classic pop, what's not to like? absolutely it's a, it's a it's a great show and you go to mixler m-i-x-l-r and then search your name julia yeah Harrison. sorry that's right that's the other bit i meant to say thank you for mopping up now as i say regularly 
you can never go wrong with Aretha. <laughs> It's too true, and I actually played this on on my my show. Mm. I've just unsubtly plugged last week. Um, I, I very much enjoyed this. Um, Aretha Franklin went bit of a, through a bit of a strange time in the late seventies, early eighties. They tried to kind of relaunch her as a sort of a <laughs> disco pop star. Well, they tried to do a Tina Turner on her, really, didn't they? I guess yes. that's what they were trying to do. And uh, Aretha is marvelous at all times, in my view. But um, some of that era worked better than others. But I, my friend described this song and I think it's a perfect description as being surreal but compelling and uh, you know this is the Aretha Franklin covering the the uh, the Doobie Brothers that you never knew that you needed and yet it is it's I, I rather like it it's um it's very smooth she it seems to suit her voice it does get a bit drum machine centric in places so I'm sorry for that but I think it's worth listening to it's and um, as you say you can never go wrong with Aretha she is the queen oh soul so this is a uh, Aretha Franklin and doing What a Fool Believes. What a fool
You've been listening to a Parish Council production. <laughs>